Alrighty, encourage you to grab a Bible and go to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, it's probably a, a red one in front of you. If you don't own one, you can take that home as a gift from us. The passage of Scripture is in your little handout as well as on your screen. So we're coming kind of to the end here. We've got a couple more chapters, and uh, there, there are reasons why most pastors don't preach the second half of Acts. It's, uh, it's kind of a tough little section, all right? It's not like hard to understand, but it's just like this is... Luke just telling story and history and what's ah like what's going on here? What do I have to bring? And so uh, I've got something so today and so we'll see how the Lord blesses us through our time together as we uh, work through this uh, chapter here. So if you will or if you can uh, stand with me in honor of reading God's word. So we are reading the majority of this chapter, and so I don't want anybody passing out. If you get tired, get all the freedom to sit down. All right, but I just feel like. I, I tried to find places where we can cut it, but I cut a few verses at the end. So we're going to read verses 1 through uh, 29. Not really sure if it matters a lot that I cut out 30, 31, and 32, but, you know, it's like, well, it's three less verses, right? So, all right, thanks for uh, two people laughing. Awesome. We're going to have a great time together this morning. Verse 1, here we go. Then Agrippa said to Paul, and, and once again, we're jumping into the uh, middle of a context, and I'll explain it here in just a minute. But this is King Agrippa, all right, so pretty prominent figure said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. And the motioning of his hand wasn't like quieting down the crowd. It's more of a, a, a paying respect to King Agrippa, the way he motioned with his hands. So just in case we don't have weird stuff going on there. Verse two, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to be to see fulfilled in these, uh, and they earnestly serve God day and night. Oh, King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were... Um, and when, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from synagogue to, a, to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. And about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me my, and my companions. And we all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and return to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple, and I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would reclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. Why? Because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And then Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here's what I want to do today, all right? And I'm just really encouraging you to stay with me because when I mention this word, a lot of you are just going to go, ah, I'm just not going to listen. So this is what I want to do today. I want to talk about witness, all right? And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ here, Jesus is redefining who you are. And part of your identity now is that you are a witness. We saw this In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as we kind of use that as a theme for us to walk through the entire book of Acts, and in that verse, it says you, meaning these 11 disciples and us also, when you become a Christian, you receive power. You receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you receive this power? So that you will be my witnesses. And that's just not for the 11. That's for all of us who call Jesus King. It's for all of us who are followers of Christ. This is who we are. This is why we're on planet Earth. You are a witness. Now, I know that comes with all kinds of baggage, all right? And we'll unpack some of that in just a few minutes. I realize that sometimes we feel like a lot of guilt and shame in this area, and a lot of us feel maybe inadequate in this area. And so hopefully by the end of our message together, you won't feel those two, because that's not my goal, to make you feel guilty or to make you feel more inadequate. Let's just all agree on something. We all are inadequate to be witnesses. That's why we need the Holy Spirit's power, all right? That's, that's why he comes. I can't do this in my strength. I can't do this in my power. But I would also say that you have the tools, you have all you need to be a witness of Jesus. All you need. You have all the tools. You only need apologetic training. You don't need to learn the four spiritual laws. You don't have to go to some kind of gospel track training. You have all you need to be a witness because each of us in this room have a story. You have a narrative. You have a spiritual story. And I want to argue today that it needs to be told. So think about it. Think about this. All right, think about it. 
If I would come to you this morning and I would say, hey, what's your favorite book? They're like, tell me what your favorite book is. I guarantee you that almost all of you in this room, and there may be a few outliers, all right, but I guarantee all of you in this room would not say this. Well, uh, you know, when I was in college, there was this chemistry book, and it rocked my world, right? And matter of fact, Lyle, I read it every year because I just love that book, chemistry, right? You're not going to, or calculus or physics, whatever it is, you're, you're not going to point to some textbook in college or high school that changed your life and you read it all the time. No, most of us are going to point out some story, some narrative, whether it was, you know, fiction or nonfiction, but some story that actually captivated your heart and you find yourself reading it almost every year, right? And even when you read it, again, there's always another layer or this and that you're learning for the first time. And that's because stories have a way of just kind of captivating us, engaging us and seeing all kinds of angles about our own lives. I, I would... I would think and argue that's one of the reasons why the TV show This Is Us is so popular right now. Anybody hooked on that show? Amen. Yes, I am. Like, goodness gracious, like when they get a new one out, I just love this show. And I think part of the reason why we all love it is because it's, it's giving us a story of these individual lives. Like it's, it's telling us how Randall became Randall, right? It's giving us the backstory of how Randall is all kinds of stuff going on in him, and we begin to see this fleshed out on TV. There's, there's something captivating about a story. That's why, you know, the Bible is 40% of it is narrative. Why? Because stories captivate our hearts. That's why, you know, you can make an argument the whole entire Bible is one story telling one theme who has one author, and that is God. And he writes in stories because it captivates us. It's a way of you know, gauging our hearts and our lives. So with that said, I would argue that one of the greatest tools that you have in being a witness is your story. And your story needs to be told. Some of you might be sitting there, okay, well, where do you get that in Acts chapter 26? That is a great question. Thank you for asking that that one or two people here. But let me show you where I get this out of Acts 26. So just like I said, we kind of jump in the middle of the context here. Paul is before King Agrippa. He's been in Caesarea for about two years on trial trying to get to Rome, all right? So if you're just kind of with us, Jews have all these accusations uh, or just joining us, accusations against him. He's been kind of like before all these people. This is kind of the third trial that he's on. He's trying to get to Rome so he can present his case before Caesar. And so King Agrippa is the last guy that he's kind of presenting his case before. And it's kind of beautiful and interesting how Luke kind of builds the scene for us. If you, we didn't read this, but in chapter 25, verse 23, this is kind of how Luke kind of builds the scene. He says this, the next day, talking about Agrippa and Bernice, I think that's how you say her name, Bernice, Bernice, one of those things, came with great pomp, right? Great showiness. You know, they have their, you know, purple robe on, their crown on, and they bring in this massive entourage of people and entered the audience room with high-ranking officers and leading men of the city. So here's this, this court, you know, King Agrippa and this sort of queen, so to speak. And if you don't know who King Agrippa is, well, his granddad is the one that killed all the babies in, in Matthew chapter 2. His father was the one that beheaded James in Acts chapter 12. So a great a lot of great role models. You thought your family was jacked up. Uh, and then this Bernice that we found out about here is actually his sister, but 
rumors have it, based on what I understand, there was, it was more than sisters, if you know what I mean. If you got children in here, you might have to explain on your way home, but some weird stuff going on here. So, so man, this is like, um, you know, like just a lot of power, so to speak. And here comes Paul. Not really attractive. Kind of bug eyes, they say. He's in some kind of like prison garb. He's in chains. When you, when you feel this, you kind of feel like this is Paul's moment. Like this is it. He's got the big daddy, right? This is king. He can make things happen. So here's his, his moment that he can speak in to one of the most powerful people in his time. And man, just, just imagine what if King Agrippa becomes a Christian? Man, the whole landscape of the church and Christianity can change. Man, if I can, if I can get him, man, I might get the whole kingdom. I mean, you're just going to feel this moment here. And so you're kind of asking questions. What, you know, what's Paul going to say? What's he going to, what's he going to do here? Is he going to be like he was with, you know, the, the people in Athens where he kind of like, you know, I'm going to quote your poets and show you how relevant I am. And then I'm going to do a gospel turn and bring Jesus in, you know, like lay the bomb down on you guys. Or, or is he going to be more like, you know, he did with the, the Sanhedrin when he kind of came in and, and just kind of pounded the table and called the high priest a whitewashed wall. That's what you are, right? Like what's going to happen? This is Paul's moment. And Paul doesn't do either one of those. Paul shares his story. It's kind of anticlimactic, I feel like. I mean, you put yourself in Paul's shoes. I don't know about you, but I'd be staying up all night trying to figure out this talk, right? Building all my arguments, man, trying to figure out the hook. How are we getting into this thing? How am I landing the plane? And this is a huge moment, and all Paul does is share the story. Why? Well, one... In this time, when anybody was trying to build a defense, this is kind of how you built your defense. This was the, and we'll walk through this in just a minute. These are the three, there's three kind of movements that people would always do to build their defense. So that's, that's one reason. But a, another reason, and I would say this is where Paul is, Paul gets it that if I can share my story, I'm not going to reveal something special about Paul. I'm going to reveal something special and beautiful about Jesus. And that's what I want to do because that's who I am. I am a witness. So look, look, there's three kind of movements. I'm going to walk through these really fast here. It's three movements that we see Paul kind of laying out here as he shares the story. The first one is simply this. What was my life like before Jesus? Or another question I would ask is, who was I? Who was I? And so he unpacks this for us. Look at verse 5. He says this, they talking about the Jews, have known me for a long time and can testify if they're willing that according to the strictest sect of religion, I lived as a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee above Pharisees. I'm like the top of my class in this whole Pharisaical stuff. Like he was a strict Pharisee. Not only that, verse 9 through 11 says this, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I hated him. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, basically just saying, like, I was for it, I was behind it. Yes, we need to do this. And many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I tortured people. I waterboard them, so to speak, right? 
to get people to blaspheme the name of Jesus. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. So Paul, in essence, is saying, look, man, I was the strictest of Pharisees, and I hated Jesus. And I was a persecutor of anyone that called themselves a Christ follower. And I did everything in my power. My aim before I met Jesus was to destroy the Jesus movement. And I love, I don't know if you caught this in verse 14, I love how Jesus describes this part of Paul's life. He describes it as kicking against the goads. Some of us have no idea what a goad is. A goad is this sharp stick that they would use to prod ox, try to keep them in line. And so if you kick against that stick, it just hurts more, right? It's just like, this is useless. And so the meaning of that is basically useless opposition. There's like, you're not going to go anywhere by kicking against the goad. And the best way for me to kind of translate this in, in, in our language is this is how everybody feels when they go against Kentucky. Amen. It's like useless opposition. Amen. And that's what Wichita State is going to feel a little bit this afternoon. So like, look, I love that because those people that love Kentucky are now with me again. All right. And those people that hate Kentucky are now with me again. You know what I'm saying? And those that are in between and don't give a rip are going like, come on, pastor, quit talking about Kentucky. So I got everybody back with me. So that's what we see here. This is what I was, all right? Then what happened? That's the second movement. Because this, like, this is not who I am today. Like, I'm not a Jesus hater. I'm not a Jesus persecutor. I'm not a Pharisee anymore. So what happened? Well, the second movement here is how he met Jesus. Look what he says here, starting in verse 12. So I was one of these journeys, and I was going to Damascus. And I would, I would stop here and just say, look, all of us can resonate with Paul here. Yeah, maybe. We weren't on the road to Damascus, but all of us that call ourselves Christians here have a similar testimony, and this is what I mean by that. You were going somewhere. Like you, had, you had plans. You had an agenda, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes and interrupts your life. And that happens in multiple layers, right? One of those is you may have been born into a home where mom and dad loved Jesus. Guess what? That wasn't your doing. That was Jesus' doing. And some of you, it might have been a friend. Might have been someone handing you a Bible. Might have been someone inviting you to a Bible study. It might have been, you know, rolling in a hotel room, done with yourself, and you open up a Gideon's Bible. Look, there's a way in which Jesus comes and interrupts you, whether you're ready for it or not, because I would argue, because it's all throughout Scripture, that Jesus first finds you before you ever go and find Jesus. And that's what we see with Paul. I'm headed to Damascus. My plan is to kill Jesus' followers. Boom! Big change. Look what happens. With the authority and the commission of the chief priests, and at noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions, and we all fell to the ground. Why do you fall to the ground? Because he's king. His glory is overwhelming. There's only one natural response, and that is to put your face in dirt. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And that's what happened to Paul. So here's who I was. I was a Pharisee man amongst Pharisees. I was strict. I was a persecutor of the way. But something happened to me. And what happened to me? I met Jesus which leads us to the third movement that Paul talks about because after he meets Jesus, there's a whole other life with Jesus now. So what, 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 what is Paul now? This is who I was, but now who is he now that he's met Jesus? And this is what we see here 
and verses 16 through 19. And what Paul emphasizes here is Jesus' commissioning of Paul. Look what he says here. Now get up. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. And stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I shall show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I'm sending you to them, the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. So then, King Agrippa, look, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. So here's who I was. I met Jesus, and now this is who I am. I'm, I'm a proclaimer of the way of Jesus. I'm going to a group of people that do not know anything about Jesus, and I'm the one that's now proclaiming this good news to them. And what Paul, in essence, in essence is wanting King Agrippa to do is to reconcile in his mind what happened. Like, he's wanting King Agrippa to look at this story and go, how did this happen? What changed? How does Paul go from a persecutor to a worshiper? How does Paul go from someone who hates Jesus and everyone who follows Christ to someone now who loves and worships Jesus? He is pushing King Agrippa to say, look, reconcile this in your mind. How can you make any kind of argument that I'm before you being persecuted by all these people? Like, what's the difference? What has happened to me? And Paul's one word explanation is Jesus. That's it. I met Jesus. And yes, like, look, look, think about this, guys. Look, like, Paul is brilliant. Like, his IQ is off the roof. But they did IQ tests back in that time, you know? His ACT score went like 36, right? This dude is brilliant. And so, yes, man, look, he could have spent, you know, the night before meeting King Agrippa, looking at the Old Testament and building an argument. He does that a little bit in the first part here, building an argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ because King Agrippa is a Jew. He could have just played proposition upon proposition and just presented it as sort of his argument toward, all right, this is why the resurrection is true. But Paul chose not to do that. Instead, he chose to lay before King Agrippa his story. Because Paul knew that by laying before him his story, that he would see the power of Jesus, that he would, through his story, be able to reveal to King Agrippa the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the things I've tried to do, maybe in kind of subtle ways, maybe I should have been more explicit on this, but one of the things I've tried to do in subtle ways over the course of us working through the book of Acts is try to uh, sort of tear down ideas that we've had about witness and build new ones. And so if you, if you kind of grew up in church, when you hear the word witness, some of you might have like, I don't know, flashbacks to horror stories and like, I mean, just weird stuff where we always kind of like think of witness as my one-on-one encounter with an individual where I've got this plan way I'm moving, like through the four spiritual laws, or maybe it's three questions, but I'm manipulating the conversation and working it because I'm trying to get to the end where I can land the deal, right? I got to bring my sales pitch in, pray a prayer, check him off, done, high five, I'm out of here, right? That's, that's some of the mindset. And what I've tried to do is like totally tear that down. Not that there's a verbal piece to our witness, but I'm just trying to make an argument that witness is more than that. And I would say it's your whole entire life. 
Your whole life is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, taking a dead heart and making it alive again. Your entire life is that. I would say that's part of what Jesus is trying to get across when he's unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. It's a whole new way of living. It's a whole new way of looking at power and forgiveness and sexuality, all of these things. It's a whole new way of living under the kingdom of God. And this whole life is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. I love what David Dark says in his little book called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. So that title is kind of intriguing, so I read it, I encourage you to, to, to grab it. But this is what he says. This is what I'm trying to get across. My witness is simply the evidence of my output. My witness is the sum of everything I do and leave undone. Our witness isn't what we say we believe or even what we think we believe. It is what we do, what we give, what we take, and what we actually bring to our little worlds. Witness knows no division. And this is exactly what Paul is doing. Instead of laying out this massive argument, playing before King Agrippa his life, and in my life reveals the truth of the resurrection And I love, love what Paul does here. He doesn't just tell a story in order to get free. You follow me? Like, I don't, I don't think, maybe it probably is a little bit there. I would say that the primary reason of Paul telling a story is not so that he can get favor from King Agrippa and be free, because Paul is free. He's more free than King Agrippa is. And in fact, what I would say, he's telling his story in order to get the king and everyone that's listening to believe. And King Agrippa gets it. He feels it. Because Paul gets that if I can share my story, I'm not revealing something special about Paul. I'm revealing something unique, special, and powerful about Jesus. That's why we hear this humorous conversation to some extent, and at the same time, really sad when King Agrippa says this, in verse 28, then Grippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? That's like he feels it. Like Paul's not just presenting his case to get free. I'm trying to persuade you to become a Christian. I love what Paul says in reply, short time or long, I don't care. I pray that God, not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for the That's why if you, you kind of would read through the latter half of the book of Acts, that every time Paul gets before a group of people that are not Christians, he shares his story. He shares his story. You have a story, and it needs to be told. We see this with Jesus also. You can go home and read this. This is a great little story in Luke chapter 8. He lands on the scene here. I forget the town. Uh, sorry, should have wrote that down, but I forgot the town right now. But there's a, a man who's got ten no, numerous amounts of de demons in him. He's, the demon's called Legion because he has numerous demons in him. And he lives out in the outskirts of the town in the tombs. He's, he's naked, doesn't wear clothes. He's completely out of his mind, out of his mind. Jesus meets him casts the demons out, throws them into a herd of pigs. 
we need to go home and read a story. The pigs go off the cliff, they die, and farmers are freaking out, and the government gets involved. But <laughs> just thank you. Thank you for the laughter. All right, because I didn't get much in the nine. I don't know. I may have offended some people in the nine. But that's not, government didn't get involved. That's just being stupid. All right, so, but here's, here's the thing. It's so beautiful. This scene, this man goes back. He comes to Jesus, and whenever you have someone that's set your life straight, that brings you back to sanity, brings a wholeness to you, like you know what I'm saying? Like you, when you meet Jesus, all that kind of happens, man. And what do you want to do? You want to, you want to be around him. So this man does. I want to, I want to, I want to be with you. I want to follow after you. I want, I want to be number thirteen on your team, right? And Jesus said this. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away and said this, return home and tell, and tell how much God done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for Exactly what Paul does. If you're a follower of Christ, listen to me. You have a story. You have a story. And your story needs to be told. Your story needs to be shared. It's one of the, not the only means, but one of the primary means by which Jesus has given you to be a witness for you to tell story. Whenever I talk about this, I think one of, one of two things usually kind of rises to the surface in it. One of those is shame. And shame has a way of kind of um, presenting itself in, in a couple ways. Some of you here feel shame about telling your story because you don't feel like your story is very interesting. You were saved at a young age. Like me, I, God saved me when I was seven years old. So whenever I think about telling my story, I just think, boring, right? You know, I'm not waterboarding anybody. You know, I'm not like some kind of terrorist like Paul was. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, it's so lame. You know, like nobody wants to hear my story. But look, guys, look, we got to, I need to remember and you need to be reminded that I need to allow the word of God to define my life before Jesus. And the word of God tells me that I was dead. I was spiritually dead. I didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. So it's just as miraculous that I got saved as a seven-year-old versus Paul when he was in his mid-30s, whatever he was, because Jesus came and resurrected a dead heart and made it alive again. That is a miracle, and that miracle needs to be told. I just just find it so, um, so like, hard sometimes because sometimes shame will, will keep us from really stepping in and sharing our story because we think we're so, it's so boring. But please man, remember, think about all that God saved you from. If you became a Christian at eight years old, think about all the pain and the guilt and the shame and the wounds and all that comes with sin, all the junk that God saved you from. That is a miracle. You didn't do that. God did that for you. But look, own your story. Own it. And tell it. 
Another way shame kind of rears its head is kind of the opposite of extreme of it, right? Some of us in this room have trouble stepping in and sharing our stories because we're embarrassed of all that we've done. We feel a lot of shame about what we did in our past. And I find it so interesting that usually the people that feel really embarrassed about their past want the story of the kid that got saved when he was eight, right? And those who got saved when they're eight, they want the story of the one who had a horrible past. And I just want to say, if that is you here and you feel shame about what you have done, look, you're not, by you sharing your story, you're not trying to glorify that. You don't feel Paul glorifying, you know, doing what he did in his past, nor do you feel Paul being proud of it. He's just saying, like, this is who I was. This is not who I am now, and my past does not own me. And there's now no condemnation. So I can step into this, not in some kind of weird, arrogant way, but in a humble way, say, look, this is where I was. This is what was going on in my life before I met Jesus. Don't allow shame to keep you from sharing your story. I love what Dan Allender says in his little book, uh, To Be Told. He says this, your life and my life not only reveal who we are, but they also help reveal who God is. Own your story. There is no other story like yours. Your story is unique. There's never been or ever will be another one like yours in this life. In this unique story, God is making something specifically known about himself. Own it and tell it. What a story that needs to be told. But not only shame, but the second thing that sometimes rises to the top for us is the area of uh, cynicism. And we get a little suspicious. So if you're not a Christian here, and sometimes you might have heard stories that, that you know, kind of have this melody. My life was miserable. I met Jesus, and now my life is awesome. My life was horrible. I met Jesus. Everything's fulfilled, and I'm really, really happy now. And so if you hear that over and over, like, maybe I'm speaking to myself, all right, which I am, but maybe I'm kind of like talking out loud and kind of projecting something on you, but I'm okay to own that. I think it cultivates cynicism, and you're very suspicious about it. So here's what I want to say to that. There is some truth to that. There is. You can't just like throw all that out. So I would, I would argue Paul, if Paul was up here, he would say, yeah, you know, like there was a part of my life that was miserable in the sense of like there was something driving me to go and squelch Jesus. Like there was something in me that was restless. And so if you want to call that misery, whatever it is, so call it. He met Jesus. And then his life was fulfilled, way different and way better. But we've got to allow Jesus to define what fulfilled and way better means. Because for Paul, humanly speaking, his life got worse. He's beaten, he's stoned, like stone, you know, with rocks. He's, he's put in prison. Like the reason why he's standing before King Agrippa is because of his relationship with Jesus, guys. So Jesus has to be the one that defines better. Jesus has to be the one that defines fulfilled. I would say this, look, our stories have power not because they prove I have a better life. Like that's just, that's just silliness. Oh, I'm gonna prove I've got a better life because I've got Jesus. No, our stories have power 
because they give witness to the grace of God that is seen through Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't make an argument that this story has power also. My life was miserable. I met Jesus, and guess what? My life is still miserable. But I'm not abandoning Christ, because who else do I have to go to? He's it. That story has power. The world has no explanation for this. The world has explanation for my life was miserable. I met Jesus. Everything's happy. But no one has an explanation that, yeah, my life was miserable. I trusted in Christ. And man, things are actually worse now. But it makes me love Jesus more. Because he's what I want. He's what I need. Dana Hallider also says this. What makes a life a glorious bestseller is that the plot reveals not a mere moral or lesson, but the very person and being of God. I'm going to say it. You have a story. And that story needs to be told. If you're a Christian here, you've never sat down and wrote out your story, like, I, I'm begging you, do it today. Do it in halftime between the games, all right? So I know Louisville's getting ready to tip off, and then there's Kentucky. You got some halftime breaks. Or, you know, as a celebration, if your team wins, spend some time, write your story, and follow the framework, all right? Just follow the framework of what Paul does. What was your life like before you met Jesus? Like, talk about that. Write out different things of what you're looking for. What, were you, what was the gnaw or the, 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 the emptiness that you possibly felt in your own soul? And then how did you meet Jesus? What, what happened there? How did Jesus come and interrupt your life? Who, who did he bring in your life? Where did you go? What, what was said? What kind of stirred this? And then what is different about your life? And look, guys, I'm not looking for all flowery. Ooh, everything. No, like the struggle is okay to talk about that is different. Like, it's okay to talk about that. We're not looking for these nice little package stories with bows on top and everything's wonderful. No, there's a struggle. I want this church to have an honest flavor to it. And I want your stories to have an honest flavor to it. And once you write it, tell it to somebody. You've got kids and they've never heard your story. Start there. Have dinner. When you get done with dinner, say, okay, I'm going to tell you my story. Here it is. If you don't have kids, awesome. Find a good close friend. If you're in a community group, one of the things we're doing in our group is that we're having individuals just share their story, their faith journey, how they came to faith in Christ. I'm telling you, it's so stinking encouraging. I love it. Like you get a window in someone's life and how they got here. How did they get here? It's so encouraging. But my hope is that you would tell your story to someone that does not know Jesus. So all of us in this room have probably one person that we have a relationship with. Maybe they're in our neighborhood. Maybe they're co-workers. Maybe they're a student, whatever it is. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Pray. Pray for that individual that God would give you an opportunity to tell them your story. Or if that's too much, here you go. Here's another option. Easter's coming. That's a softball of all softballs. Amen? I mean, everybody goes to church on Easter, right? And we want to step into those times when everybody goes to church on Easter. No guilt there, no shame there. We want to step in. And so what I would encourage you to do, all right, pray. 
Invite that person to come to Easter service. And then guess what? Maybe in the next couple weeks after Easter, pray that God will open the door for you to step in and share a story. You have a story and it needs Not a Christian here. Look, my, my desire is Paul's desire for King Agrippa is that your story would begin today. You would see your need for Jesus, and then you would repent with your faith. But your story would start day, March 19th, 